Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. All faithful interpreters of God's Word approach Scripture with certain axioms, that it is authoritative, clear, and harmonious. However, some seem to be inconsistent on these points. Some claim to affirm the absolute authority of God's Word, but when challenged on doctrine, they appeal to a creed or confession as a trump card. Others affirm the clarity of Scripture, but then insist that in order to understand certain sections, you need to have read 300 pages of contemporary literature. Still others will acknowledge the harmony of Scripture and yet pit New Testament theology against the original contextual Old Testament meaning, placing the Testaments at odds with each other. It is our contention that our hermeneutical method is the most consistent and faithful method with the presuppositions that the scriptures are authoritative, sufficiently clear, and harmonious. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right. Well, today on Do Theology, we are going to continue our series in hermeneutics. And we are talking about the authority, the clarity, the harmony of the scriptures and how that applies to this conversation. Hopefully you've listened to the first two episodes of this series. We're trying to have these episodes build on each other, that they would be uh, harmonious in that sense, that the original meanings of the first couple of episodes won't change in this episode as we expand the significance and bring new meanings alongside those already existing meanings. So, uh, I'm using hermeneutics language to explain what we're doing in this series on hermeneutics, and that's probably not the most helpful thing. <laughs> but, uh, but, but here we are, and we're, we're holding on to our presuppositions about the Bible, that it comes from God, that uh, it is understandable, and that uh, it's a spiritual process to read His Word, to learn, and to grow. And so uh, that's, that's what we're going to be talking about today, are some of those presuppositions that we hold and how that applies to this whole conversation. And to get started, we're going to talk about the clarity of Scripture. Uh, as we consider the clarity of Scripture, we should define it first and then get into how does the contextual, grammatical, historical hermeneutic handle this doctrine as opposed to the redemptive historical or Christocentric hermeneutic. So a definition for the clarity of Scripture real basic, is that God has issued Scripture in such a way that Bible readers in every generation can understand the meaning of any given text by having the Word itself and His Spirit. So one more time for those in the back. 
God has issued scripture in such a way that Bible readers in every generation can understand the meaning of any given text by having the word itself and his spirit. Yeah, now some people might uh, be taken aback by that definition a little bit. Like, well, wait a second. Like, there's, there's some really difficult passages in scripture. And we recognize, hey, you know what? That's true. That's the case. Uh, so we're not denying those realities. But we are saying that the major doctrines and the major storylines of the Bible, they are easily discernible within the text itself. Like the main meaning, the, the what God is trying to communicate there, it is discernible. There are some obscure points that might be more difficult for us because of linguistic and cultural barriers, but it is still discernible from the text itself. And, and that's something that we need to remember. Uh, I have a quote from us uh, for us from uh, Graham's Gold Graham Goldsworthy. I always always try to say his name wrong. Teddy Apologies. Graham's Goldsworthy. Yeah, uh, ap- <laughs> think of Golden Grams. That's that's what I'm thinking of. That's my problem. Uh, I'm okay. just too hungry. Uh, anyway, apologies to Mr. Goldsworthy. <laughs> uh, we don't always agree with Mr. Goldsworthy. In fact, we're going to have a, a quote later on where we do disagree with him. But for this, uh, I thought he summarized things very well. He's actually quoting from a another a guy writing on hermeneutics by the name of J.P. Callahan. This is his book, Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics. He writes that Protestants always conceded that pers- perspicuity— that's the theological word for the concept of the clarity of Scripture, perspicuity. Perspicuity was never intended to supplant interpretation. Protestant scholastics saw certain principles involved, namely, no necessary doctrine is obscure. Scripture alone is the means of saving faith. Scripture is its own interpreter. Perspicuity is limited only by human sin and ignorance and finally, God, the author, can only speak clearly and understandably. All right. And so the real basic takeaway from that, that, again, we agree with what he's saying, God is always clear. If there's ever an issue in our understanding, a difficulty, a barrier, whatever, that is because of us yeah. uh, or just generally the fallen environment in which we live. So um, what we're saying is that God has communicated in such a way that all people in all generations can understand the meaning of anything that he's communicated up to that point by having the word itself and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now there are implications when it comes to this. You brought up a good point when we were discussing this a few weeks ago that I hadn't really thought through, but uh, what's one big implication of this doctrine of the clarity of scripture? Yeah. So, I believe that extra biblical resources, such as commentaries and background books, they are helpful for enhancing our understanding of the meaning of a text, but they're never actually necessary for understanding the meaning. And the illustration that I gave with this is the text from Revelation, where uh, John is writing the letters to the churches and um, the church in Laodicea. He writes that, oh, you know, I'd rather you be warm or or, uh, hot or cold, but right now you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Well, the the typical one understanding of that passage that has uh, some people have embraced is that, oh, well, it's better to be on fire for God or not on fire for him at all and be completely turned away from him rather than just kind of sitting on the fence and being in the middle. And we have to ask ourselves, is that what that text is teaching? 
And I think even without consulting extra biblical resources or commentaries, we can say, no, that does not, that is not consistent with what the rest of the Bible teaches about how we are to relate to God. God doesn't prefer you be on fire for him or completely turned away from him. He wants you to be in a right relationship with him. That's his desire. And, yeah. and now people can bring in extra biblical resources like commentaries and historical background books that talk about Hierapolis and Colossae and how they brought in the cold springs and the hot springs. And that's helpful for enhancing the understanding of the text. But even without those, we could look at that text and say, oh, you know what? Just with what's here, the meaning is is sufficiently clear mm-hmm. that we are not to be lukewarm. We're not to be disgusting and revolting, but rather we are to be useful. Hot water's useful, cold water's useful, mm-hmm. not be lukewarm. And that's discernible so, without those commentaries. You don't need the Moody Bible handbook or the John MacArthur commentary set to understand that. But it Which, does help enhance. It can yeah. help enhance. But but if but if someone is coming from the position of wow, that Bible is just so hard. It's using stuff that I don't I don't understand. I don't relate to. I just I don't get it. I need someone to explain this to me before I can understand it. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, it might be uh, hard work, but yeah. it's it's doable. And, and that's not to say you don't need teachers in your life. God has given to the church pastors and teachers. But you individually can understand the meaning of any given text because he's communicated clearly. Um, another implication of all this is as we consider the roles of creeds and confessions and church history itself in theological development in the church, because we, we recognize that the first believers, right, right after John wrote Revelation, we didn't have the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed or the London Baptist Confession of Faith or the John MacArthur Commentary set. We didn't have any of that. There's been a development over time as God's people have gotten his word and thought through these things and developed articulations that reflect what's in Scripture from a doctrinal perspective. And so what, what role do creeds, confessions, church history, all of that, what role does that play in our lives today if God's word alone is clear? Well, the first thing that we want to say is that uh, what we find in church history are a lot of tools that we would just be stupid to ignore. So if you're trying to drive in a nail, for instance, you're working on some project and you're using a wrench, trying using the side of a wrench to nail nail the, the nail through the wood, uh, and someone says, hey, I've got this device that is designed for what you're doing. It's really helpful. Uh, you could use it, and you could go a lot faster and more efficiently. You'd be stupid to say, no, nah, I'm just going to keep using my wrench, right? Now, the wrench can get the job done, but it's going to be a longer process. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, you as an individual Christian, as you're trying to summarize doctrine and theology— you can do it, it just by yourself, <laughs> but you'd be stupid to ignore what we have in church history, which are good, faithful summaries and explanations of especially Bible-wide doctrines and theologies. And when you do it by yourself, the end result, just like driving that nail with a wrench, the end result isn't going to be as polished, most likely, at, compared to, hey, here are a bunch of God's people who've gotten together and faithfully treated Scripture, and they've come up with these art good articulations of doctrine and theology. But at the same time, uh, you you just can't do every job with a hammer. So if you're leaning so much on 
creeds, confessions, and all of church history for all that you do. Now you've just become a one-tool guy, and that's it's not designed to be that. We don't lean so heavily on creeds and confessions that when we need a wrench, we're like, no, we're just going to use this hammer because I love the hammer. It worked so well before. So we just need to recognize it as one tool out of multiple tools that God has given us, and we just need to embrace it on that on that level. Because there are many people out there who do make much of church history, and they tend to treat every theological problem as something that can be resolved by looking at what former Christians have said or agreed upon. Like, well, let's just look through this church history uh, book that I have, or let's look in the creeds, and let's look in the confessions, and let's just settle it. Well, it's when, not a tool that's to be used that way. I would say one one thing that usually ends up happening is you just go and find the guy that already agrees with what you want what you there want church you history go. to teach. Yeah, that's right. And so so we recognize, and again, we're under the umbrella right now of the clarity of Scripture as we're talking about this. The Bible alone is the sufficient authority, and it is spiritually clear to the reader. The Bible alone is this clear. Uh, creeds and confessions aren't given the clarity or the authority that the Bible has. And so we go to the Word first, and we ask the capital A author, God himself to teach us. That's the first thing we do. And we spend lots of time there and we need to be wary of being convinced by persuasive arguments throughout church history or like, hey, this big group of people believe that. So I'm just going to jump on on their team. Just got to be real careful about that. Yeah, we want to keep things in balance. We, we recognize the usefulness and the utility of the creeds and confessions. They are very helpful, but then also recognizing that they are products of uh, fallen men. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, what, what would you do if you come across a, a creed or a confession that you might disagree with? How do you respond to that? If, if we're going to be holding up these creeds and confessions as the be-all and end-all of theological doctrine, well, we have to think carefully about how, what to do if you start reading through and go, wait a second, I disagree. Like, like perhaps even uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, where there's that line where he descended into hell, Depending on how you understand that text, or understanding what what you think the original constructors of that were trying to communicate, that could create some some theological issues. So you want to, yeah, and, and your disagreement might be good and right. I yes. mean, to think of someone raised in a Presbyterian context with the Westminster Confession held up so high, and that person says, "Ah, I'm starting to disagree with the Westminster Confession on infant baptism," which good. you should. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, don't be freaked out by that. That's it. Doesn't have the, it's not the clear authority of Scripture. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's different. It's on a different level. And you want to get counsel, you know, talk, talk to individuals that may have studied these things more fully and be able to wrestle through those. Um, but you would just, again, the final authority must be vested in what do the Scriptures say, not what does whatever creed or confession say. Yeah, the creeds and confessions don't come along to clarify Scripture. Scripture is clear on its own. And yes. so you don't lean on those and say, okay, now those, those are what I need to interpret Scripture for me because the meaning is undiscernible apart from, from what these traditional creeds and confessions have said. That's not true. Scripture is clear enough on its own. Now, and this is where we get into the fun stuff. I believe that the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture leads us towards and is also an outflow from the grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic rather than some of these other hermeneutical approaches that are available. Because the grammatical, historical, uh, or the uh, rather the, uh, the, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, 
That doctrine teaches us that interpretation is a straightforward process, even if it is challenging, that the text itself contains the meaning. And if, it's, if that's true, if that's discernible from the text itself, then we have no choice but to break it down grammatically, historically, and contextually. And so we don't need to invent allegory, typology, or even redemptive historical themes that aren't plainly discernible in the text, especially if those themes put the testaments at odds with each other. Mm. Mm. Speaking a sweet hermeneutical aroma right now. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, if if we believe that scripture is clear and plain, that's another word that gets used a lot, that the text itself is discernible to the human mind. If we have the Holy Spirit, if this is true, then we just use plain methods of interpretation. It's that, it's really that simple. Uh, Now, Daryl Box said something really important in our interview with him in the last episode in this series when he pointed out, and, and we don't fully align with him in all the articulation of things. We're very close, but we don't fully align in every area on hermeneutics. But we definitely align here, um, and we align in most places. But when he said, look, we do see an expansion of things going on in progressive revelation. As time goes on and God gives more revelation, there's an expansion of the storyline, expansion of details going on. And he has no problem saying that. I don't think anybody should have a problem saying that. But he says, look, I've got a problem when someone says, look, this New Testament thing changes the meaning of an Old Testament passage, especially when that Old Testament passage seems pretty plain and obvious, and the word he used is transparent, in its original context. Uh, to, to go back and say, actually, that wasn't clear in the Old Testament. The New Testament's clear, the Old Testament's unclear. That is actually doing a disservice to that overall doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Yes. So, we teach and we believe, we affirm that Scripture is clear, it is discernible. And connected with that, with its clarity, comes authority. Well, the fact that it's from God is what gives it its authority. Scripture alone is a sufficient authority for our lives, for our doctrine, for our theology. When we speak of the authority of Scripture, we speak that it is the only inspired, which means it is God-breathed, is the only inspired, inerrant, infallible, It does not err. It cannot err. It cannot be mistaken. Everything that it teaches is true, and it is alone. It is sufficient, is the sufficient written work of God. Scripture alone is the only inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient written work of God. Now, the grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic, our hermeneutic, affirms that authority of the text— by allowing the text to speak for itself in its own context. So we know that what we're walking into here, what we're tiptoeing into on this issue of authority is going to be contentious. We know that those who hold to differing hermeneutics, uh, those that take different views than we do on hermeneutics, they're going to object to a lot of things we have to say in this realm here. But as we see uh, it... tiptoeing, we're going to step on some toes, I think. That's true. That's very true. But as we see it, Other approaches actually diminish the authority of a text when they claim that its meaning is not discernible on the basis of its own context. 
when they look at that text, and it's, you know, 99% of the time, I guess, in the Old Testament, they look at an Old Testament passage in its own context and say, well, the meaning of that text isn't discernible in its own context. We're saying they're actually doing a disservice now to the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. We believe that the clarity of a text in its own context is essential to the authority over the recipients of that text. So just as we say the text is clear, we are now tying that into the authority and saying, if, if you go and you mess with the clarity issue, now you're messing with the authority issue. So uh, there are some other valid hermeneutics we talked about in the first episode of this series. So again, if you haven't um, listened to that first episode, check that out. But one of those other valid methods of hermeneutics that we disagree with, we, we see, recognize it as being valid. These are... Uh, many of them are believers, but we just disagree on their approach to hermeneutics, is the theological interpretation of Scripture. And those who hold to that view place theology as authoritative. It becomes the grid of viewing the Bible, which, like we said in the first episode, you're going to be okay if you take that view as long as your theology is biblical. <laughs> but we recognize that the whole the whole thing is backwards because you're you're supposed to get biblical theology out of the Bible. You're not supposed to read biblical theology into the Bible. That's just a backwards way of doing it. Um, and that is messing with the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. You're not going to Scripture first. The redemptive historical hermeneutic it creates a hierarchy of authority within the larger text of the Bible, uh, the Christocentric view or redemptive historical, we'll st we're still working on whether we want to separate those two views or lump them together. But, but basically, those two views both lean this way of saying, look, the New Testament is clearer and interprets the Old Testament for us. Therefore, we're going to fill in the blank. This is something they would not say. But therefore, the New Testament has the greater authority. Ouch. Yeah, I'm, we're going to read some quotes here uh, to try to substantiate our point on this. Um, and again, we are kind of drawing out what we think are the implications of their view. So certainly we acknowledge that there will be objections on this point. But listen to, again, this is from the same book I referenced earlier, Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics by uh, Mr. Golden Graham, Graham Goldsworthy. <laughs> um, he writes that Jesus Christ is the interpretive key to every fact in the universe, and of course the Bible is one such fact. He goes on to say, thus we must assert that the person and work of Jesus Christ are foundational for evangelical hermeneutics. Christ interprets all facts since all things were created in him, through him, and for him. He's clearly placing the, uh, a priority, and in, in he's going to go on and, and write in this book as well, the, the priority of the gospel in hermeneutics and how we must view all of Scripture, including all aspects of the Old Testament, first through the lens of Jesus Christ, and that is where we must begin. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we can even know what the Old Testament is teaching at all. David Murray, in his book, Jesus on Every Page, says, Jesus himself used the New Testament light to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. He used the light of the New Testament events to preach from the Old Testament. And then he goes on to quote Graham Goldsworthy, 
saying, We do not start at Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it is all leading. Rather, we first come to Christ, and He directs us to study the Old Testament in light of the Gospel. The Gospel will interpret the Old Testament by showing us its goal and meaning. So the Old Testament meaning is found in the Gospel. That's what he's saying. It's kind of interesting, if you ask me. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, this is from his book, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture. He says, the soundest methodological starting point is the gospel. Since the person of Jesus is proclaimed as the final and fullest expression of God's revelation of his kingdom. He even says this, I, and this is when I read stuff like this, it's like, we are just so far apart. Jesus is the goal and fulfillment of the whole old Testament. Okay. <laughs> and uh, one more. This is Sidney Gradanis. And he's got his hermeneutical circle, the illustration that he uses in his book, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And uh, <laughs> this is just pretty interesting. He says, The Old Testament by itself is like an incomplete painting. The revelation in and of Christ in the New Testament completes this painting. And we must now see every part of the Old Testament in the light of the whole painting. And I'm not disagreeing much up to this point. And this next statement, though, is where it's like, okay, this is where it gets a little confusing. This analogy is nothing other than a form of the standard hermeneutical circle. And it's just one thing feeding into another. So two parts of the circle where it just feeds into one another. He says, one cannot really know the meaning of a part until one knows the whole and one cannot know the whole until one knows its parts. That is where I disagree. I, I like the incomplete painting illustration. I, I use it when I teach hermeneutics, but to say you can't know the meanings of the individual parts until you know the whole, that means that all those people receiving revelation in the old Testament had no idea what was being said. Right. Which is wild to me. Yeah. So the, the idea is that what comes later, it, this is, again, this is our assessment of this, this kind of approach to hermeneutics. The idea, what comes later, has more authority and clarity than what came previous to that. And, and maybe we read some of these quotes, and you might be listening, going, well, what's, what's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with, with viewing the, don't you need the New Testament to understand the Old Testament? And I think we're going to get into aspects of... Uh, how we understand meaning and significance in a future episode. Uh, but we, we recognize that there are things in the New Testament that help us understand the greater significance of the meaning found in the Old Testament. But our issue is that the meaning is in the Old Testament. The meaning of the mm-hmm. Old Testament text is in the Old Testament itself. And so we don't want to import New Testament meaning to change Old Testament meaning even if we do see a grander significance of what was being communicated in the Old Testament. Good, yeah, because we're not denying that there's an expansion of significance. We're not denying yes. that there's more detail added to the storyline. We're not denying that, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we we now have a, 
we read the Old Testament differently because we have a full biblical theology that we can have in our minds as we read the Old Testament. So we're not saying, yeah, turn all that off and pretend like you don't even have the New Testament when you read the Old Testament. We're not saying that. Right. But we're just objecting to this idea that the Old Testament passages, well, and they wouldn't say this about all of them, but a lot of them, their meaning is undiscernible apart right. from the New Testament. We're yeah. just re- we're rejecting that element. Right. We believe their meanings are discernible on their own, in their own context. So let's talk about some things to guard against. Again, thinking through some implications of this, both clarity and authority of Scripture. Yeah, so the first has to do, we mentioned creeds and confessions earlier. Uh, we want to be careful about embracing some uh, formulation, some uh, later formulation of doctrine that's handed down without actually studying to show yourself approved. So again, this is kind of the same cautions that we already spoke to about creeds and confessions, recognizing that they're useful and helpful, but being careful not to view them as the authority and interpreter of Scripture. And and they're, they're not the conduit by which right. our faith has trickled down to us. Yes, that's what some well, so pe- people would say. Well, yeah, we contend for the faith that was handed down, and it's been handed down in creeds and confessions. No, it has not. Mm-hmm. It's been handed down through Scripture and the preservation of God's Word. So we want to be careful through that. Um, and I mean, we also have to recognize that there are reasons why there have been new creeds and confessions that have been written over the years, right? Not all of the creeds and confessions agree with one another. There are differences on a few points. And so if we're going to uphold the creeds and confessions, we have to ask, okay, which one? Yeah. And you might be wondering why we're talking so much about creeds and confessions, because it can almost feel like it doesn't fit. Um, but there's a, there's a lot to the hermeneutics conversation, and we're wanting to incorporate this guarding against leaning on church history and other interpretations, like even get outside of, you know, uh, ancient creeds and confessions and just think about even contemporary commentators. It's the same idea. We want to guard against this idea that, uh, wow, we, we need the New Testament to tell us what the Old Testament meant. And we need modern commentators or we need extra biblical creeds or whatever to tell us what the whole of the Bible means. Right. We're saying you can actually get into the word of God yourself and draw out from it what God is saying. Amen. <laughs> All right. So um, so we're not just like, you know, trying to really knock on creeds and confessions because we've got an ax to grind or something like that. I mean, it, it, we're using creeds and confessions, but you can throw in commentaries. You can throw in your favorite preacher to listen to on TV or whoever it is. Well, okay. And we're, yeah. and we're just trying to uphold this doctrine in light of some potential pitfalls that you might have as you navigate the Christian life. Yeah. And, and our churches have a doctrinal statement, which is essentially a confession of faith. Right? Yeah. So it's not like we're jettisoning these things and saying, you never want to use these tools. They are tools. We recognize that. But again, what interprets what, what establishes authority, where, where's our final authority? And, and really, we're just encouraging you to Get into the word yourself. You Amen. can do it. Amen. <laughs> I mean, like, or, uh, or you don't need another, uh, like, more credentialed person to hand doctrine to you and say, well, this is what you believe. We believe in sola scriptura. And you don't need a church to mediate sola scriptura for you. Right. Isn't, I hope that's encouraging. Amen. <laughs> right? Amen. Now, now, all that to say, there is a role of the church in all of this. There's a role for local churches, particularly. In fact, Scripture says the local church is the pillar and support of the truth. 
So, uh, you know, the other side of this, so as we're trying to keep people out of one ditch here, we want to keep them out of the other ditch, swing so far the other way. And it's like, okay, well, I'm just, you know, here I am on my own, figuring out the Christian message, doctrine, everything all on my own. Well, that's not the case either. So Ken, you've got a church plant called Pillar Fellowship based on this passage. What, what's the balance here when we think about the church as the pillar and support of the truth? Yeah, so I believe this passage is teaching us that the local church, God has designed things in such a way that we have the responsibility to uphold the truth. You have to ask, what do pillars do? They support things. They hold things up. And that is our role as believers, as a local church in our community, to hold up the truth, and that's the truth of God's Word. We point to the sufficiency, the authority, the clarity of God's Word as the final authority for faith and practice. That is what we are holding up. We are the pillar of the truth in the sense not that we determine what is true, but that we hold up what God has revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And so this doesn't get into, you know, the Roman Catholics will love this passage and say, yes, we are the pillar of the truth, the magisterium, the, you know, the Catholic Church. It's like, well, okay, now you're, you've gone too far, right? You've taken that concept beyond what Paul was seeking to communicate with that. We uphold not our own doctrine or our own formulations of our doctrine, but we uphold the teaching of the Word of God. Good deal. So we've covered the clarity of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, one left, Scripture is harmonious with itself, the harmony of Scripture. Yes. What do we mean by that? Scripture always agrees with Scripture. Okay, there is, there is utter consistency through all of the Word of God. There's no two passages that you could hold side by side and say that these are in contradiction to one another. There is harmony through it all. Hmm. All right. Utterly thorough consistency. Now, this can lead us into a doctrine that we want to touch on briefly called the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture. This is, uh, let's just give some definitions by other people on this one. Uh, Westminster Confession, going back to the confession we just knocked earlier about (laughs) baptism. In section 1.9, the Westminster Confession says that basically the analogy of faith is this. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. R.C. Sproul said this about the analogy of Scripture, the analogy of faith. The supreme arbiter in interpreting the meaning of a particular verse in Scripture is the overall teaching of the Bible. And Roger Duke, for Founders Ministry, in an article, wrote, When a text is obscure, a meaning must be sought elsewhere from a more simple text that sheds light on the vague. Yeah, so that's the concept of the analogy of faith, the analogy of Scripture, and and the way we see this we see that there's some pros and cons to this approach. On the plus side, on the pros side, it's upholding the consistency of Scripture. It's assuming that, hey, you know what, when, when God has spoken, and, and, and though we might struggle to understand a text, 
Well, the, the, the concept of the consistency of Scripture is going to teach us that it's never going to be in contradiction to what has been revealed elsewhere. So if we find clues to meaning in other texts, that we can use that to help us inform what is communicated in this more difficult text that we're dealing with. God intends to be understood, and so we're, it's assuming that there is... Notice also it's assuming that there is but one meaning of the passage mm-hmm. from that, uh, especially that uh, quote from the Westminster Confession, that there is one meaning in a given passage, but that with the consistency of Scripture, that's going to be, if it's not discernible from the text by itself, there's going to be clues in other texts to help out. Now, there are some cons to this, and uh, I've really become passionate about this over the last few months. A big con for me is who determines what scriptures are the clear ones and which ones are the vague ones. (laughs) Like in that uh, last quote from Roger Duke, when he says, you got to find a simple text that will shed light on the vague. Well, get into, if you've been in a Calvinist versus Arminian debate, you know that the Arminian is over here saying, these are such clear passages about man's free will. Right. And the Calvinist is saying, these are so clear about God's sovereignty. They have to, you have to check that with these. And he says, no, you have to check those with these. Well, who gets to determine that? And particularly when we get into conversations about end times and Israel and the church and all of that, later revelation is sometimes presupposed to be clearer and seen as contradictory to early earlier scriptures, but it's clearer. And so it's actually giving a new meaning to those earlier scriptures is how it is often used. So you've got these two texts, one about a future for Israel in the land as a nation again, sometime in the future, having peace with all the surrounding nations. And then you've got the New Testament with a lot of focus on the church, it seems. And then you have these certain passages uh, that talk about the church participating in the new covenant. And so it seems like it's contradictory. Well, let's go with the later ones. Let's say those are clearer, and let's go back to those earlier texts and just see a new hidden spiritual meaning in those earlier texts. Yeah. And that's that's something that we find objectionable. Yeah. Often the and, uh, the unclear texts are just the ones that uh, are difficult to reckon with our theological position rather than yes. the clarity on its own. Yes. Yeah, and this goes back to that Sydney Great Annis quote that I read earlier about the parts and the whole. It's like, okay, well, let's back up and let's find a, let's see the whole of scripture. Let's get a whole biblical theology. Let's get a whole storyline. And then we're going to go back and understand the parts based on that. And we say, well, the parts have their fixed meaning in their own context apart from anything else. And you can't go back and change what is said there. Yeah. That's, that's where there's a rub. And there's a, a view called the canonical interpretation of Scripture. That, that's basically what Great Annis is espousing, saying we need the whole canon of Scripture to interpret any part of Scripture. And uh, we talked through some of that with Dr. Michael Vlock, which episode will come out next week. Yeah. And so what, uh, what this ends up coming down to for us and again, this is watch your toes now because this is where things get get a little steppy, I guess. That the grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic does the most justice to the principle of the harmony of Scripture because it allows the text to speak for themselves before synthesizing the message. 
Okay, to allow the New Testament to change the meaning of the Old Testament is to reveal that the interpreter is missing the storyline harmony that is being revealed through the Testaments, and so one must force his own theological harmony through New Testament priority, and we say that is an artificial harmonization. Yeah, you give the priority of clarity and authority to the New Testament. And then when you go to harmonize scripture, you're not actually harmonizing meanings with meanings. You're forcing a supposed New Testament teaching onto an existing Old Testament meaning and changing it Mm -hmm. and of deviating from the original intent of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. It's a little, to me, there's a little bit of irony, and this, this, this is kind of getting into a conversation we're not going to be able to delve into fully right now. But people talk about continuity versus discontinuity and how the hermeneutics, the, the more traditional reformed hermeneutic that we're kind of critiquing through this, that it is the hermeneutic of continuity. And the more dispensational hermeneutic that we espouse is one more of discontinuity. But as we've been studying this and looking through this, I actually think there's a little bit of a reversal in my mind going on here where where it seems to me that there is a discontinuity with the Reformed hermeneutic because they're actually changing meanings or adjusting meanings based off of New Testament priority rather than allowing the whole storyline of Scripture to unfold naturally through the the progressive revelation of Scripture and allow that to unfold and show the the true harmony and the true continuity that exists in the storyline of the Bible without artificially changing and forcing New Testament meanings onto Old Testament meanings. So, I don't know, that that was a mouthful just now. And I know, I know we are probably probably raising the the ire of all of our reformed brethren out there if they're listening to this right now but hey let us that's why we're here that's why we're here yeah and we <laughs> want to hear from you you're you're listening to this and maybe you're saying amen amen or maybe you're saying what on earth are these guys smoking well send us an email show at dotheology.com facebook message us or send us a tweet facebook.com slash do theology at do theology on twitter we are available to reach out to and we would love to interact with you answer your questions to to field your uh your impassioned responses and pleas and defenses of of things that we're critiquing let's hear it we we want to hear from you we want to have that conversation we think that it's going to make things better for both of us in the long run and we know this has been more of a meta conversation, talking in some hypotheticals and things of that nature, very high level. In future episodes, we'll start looking at more texts specifically. Even yes. in our interview with Dr. Michael Vlock, we get into some specific instances of this. So hang in there, and we'll look at some specific examples soon. So looking forward very to good. that. Yeah. And until next time, do theology. I am emotionally tired and hangry. This is going to be a great episode. (laughs) A good episode for all the fisticuffs. You know what, Ken? I'm wondering if Covenant people are even saved. (laughs) (laughs) Screw the chart. Chart's stupid. I made it up. (laughs) Oh, man.
You better not edit this out. We're going live. <laughs> I'm going to save that for a, a bonus clip at the end of the episode after the outro music fades out. <laughs> I forgot. I was, yeah, we're already recording. All right. <laughs>